people in therapy are often in therapy to deal with the people in their lives who won't go to therapy. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, y'all are in for a real damn treat as I am diving deep with my former therapist, Dr. Melissa Fenton. You know, I feel incredibly blessed for the therapist I've had the pleasure of working with who have just had an insurmountable impact to my life, both my current therapist and Melissa. So I started working with Melissa at 24 years old and four years sober. It was right after the demise of my relationship with Mr. Looks Perfect on Paper, which I talked about in episode five, which was the first episode that I did on BPS, Broken Picker Syndrome. But just for a little refresh, so I met Mr. Looks Perfect on Paper I think I I called him George. I met George at a 12-step meeting. He was from New York City, but he was living in Jacksonville temporarily for work. And as his nickname suggests, he was perfect on paper. He was quite the upgrade from the guys I had previously dated in sobriety. Uh, He was well-educated. He had a great job. He came from good pedigree. He was 10 years sober. He was tall. He was attractive. But unfortunately for me, the six months that we dated was quite a miserable, emotionally dysregulated hellhole. I would say, I don't know, 10 to 15% of the time was pure bliss. And the rest of the time, I was in a hypervigilant, painful trauma response, not having any idea that I was having a trauma response, but just thinking that I was a pathetic loser. (laughs) Now, George was not a bad guy. Uh, Definitely not. Emotionally unavailable. Yes, I would say so. Uh, Dishonest at times. Yes, I would say so. But I was an untreated and oblivious adult child, you know, and I was so desperate for the relationship to work out. You know, I had already planned our wedding on my drive home from the first date. And so I disregarded so many red flags. And and then as you'll remember, he ended up ghosting me. And then a year and a half later, I ran into him on the street corner in San Francisco. But here's the deal. He was not the cause of the pain that I endured in that relationship. The cause was my unresolved childhood trauma that I didn't even realize I had until many years later and many more painful relationships. Uh, There is more to this story that I want to tell y'all about, but my interview with Melissa is rather lengthy, so I'm going to save it for um, a subsequent episode. But there's more to the story that's juicy that I want to tell y'all. And uh, also, so I just texted um, Mr. Looks Great on Paper earlier today. It's been a while since we've caught up. Um, You know, years later, 
I think it was probably, I don't know, a year or so into my adult child work. Uh, we were texting one day and I don't know how it came up, but I ended up telling him like, yeah, I was like a fucking psychopath the whole time that we were dating. Um, I did a really good job of of keeping it under wraps. But yeah, so I, I reached out to him earlier. He doesn't know about the podcast. Um, I would love to catch up with him. But so it's been it's been like seven hours since I've texted him and he has not texted me back. And you guys, if this was when we were dating, if it had been seven hours since he hadn't texted me back, I would be jumping off of a bridge. And it's actually funny. So with this being Thanksgiving week. So um, when we were dating on Thanksgiving, he was in New York. I was in Florida and he was supposed to fly down to Florida the next day. He was going to go to the Florida, Florida State football game with me. And as you'll remember from the prior episode, when he was not in town, I did not hear from him. So it was Thanksgiving. He was supposed to fly down the next day. I sent him a text that morning like, happy Thanksgiving. Excited to see you. And, you know, he frequently canceled on me last minute. So I was just always in that state of of waiting for him to cancel. So I texted him early Thanksgiving. No response. I spent that day just in in pure misery. And I remember it was like, I don't know, eight o'clock at night or so. I I went to um, a, a meeting and I remember I was so upset. I was sitting in the hallway of the meeting because I was just so anxious. And then I remember he he finally texted me back and he was like, happy Thanksgiving. I can't wait to see you tomorrow. And you guys, it was literally like I just freaking downed a bottle of Xanax or like took a hit of heroin. It was like immediately, <sighs> man, I do not miss those days. It really sucks. I know so many of us can just relate to that, to, um, yeah, just having our, our peace of mind dictated by the actions or inactions of another. And wow, is that a rather fucking miserable place to be. Uh, so two things before we go to Melissa, one being that it is Thanksgiving week, and I'm sure many of us will be around our dysfunctional families. I thought it would be good to just give a few adult child holiday tips. So here we go. Number one, you are not responsible for the happiness of others. Uh, It's not your responsibility to make sure that Thanksgiving is a wonderful, perfect experience for everyone. Number two, no is a complete sentence. Number three, you do not have to place the needs or desires of others above your own well-being. Number four, you do not have to attend every argument that you are invited to. Number five, double up, triple up, quadruple up on self-care, meetings, prayer, meditation, you know, making calls to healthy friends, listening to the Adult Child podcast on repeat. And number six, it's probably not a good idea to suggest to your dysfunctional family members who are steeped in denial that they need to listen to this podcast. Now, as much as I'd love the additional downloads, it's probably not going to go over well. So just remember, recovery is about attraction rather than promotion. And the last thing, you know what's coming. First, I just want to give a shout out to all of my new patrons. So a huge, huge thank you to Catherine, Roro, Elizabeth, Nora, Ramona, Tess, Ashley, Brenda, Allison, Kehulani. I feel like an asshole. I cannot pronounce this. Kehulani. 
I am so sorry. Please don't cancel because I can't pronounce your name. Please tell me how it's pronounced and I will say it perfectly next time. Again, Patreon is where I host um, support groups, provide additional content, and it's your way of saying thank you, Andrea. I appreciate what you're doing. Um, And always give me a damn five-star rating on Apple. So many of you have. Keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. And now for my interview with Melissa. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Melissa Fenton. She is a licensed mental health therapist, but more importantly, she's my former therapist. And more importantly, she's a friend and she's a mentor and she is very much a part of the journey that has led us to this podcast. So hi, Melissa. Hello, Andrea. Thank you for having me. (sighs) I was reflecting um, just kind of the impact that you've played on my life. You know, a couple of things, one being you are really the reason that I moved out to San Francisco. You know, I, I really feel like I was supposed to move out here one to like meet the Bryans. Um, I was supposed to meet them. I remember coming to you. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to stay in Jacksonville, but to me, moving was almost like not a possibility. And I just remember you saying like, Hey, guess what? You can move. Why don't you come back next week with some ideas? And so then that was one piece of it, getting me out here. But then most importantly, the largest role that you played is really from a spiritual perspective. I really feel like you opened my eyes so much. And I've shared, I've shared this, maybe I haven't, I I shared it on my Patreon, but basically here, here it is in a nutshell. So, you know, I'm working with you and we can, we can go back to that when I first started seeing you, but then I moved out to San Francisco And, um, we like took a little break. And then I think it was after Brian, number one, when I was like having a fucking meltdown, I reached back out to you and we started communicating again. And I think it was at this point that you were finishing up your, either your master's or your PhD in Rohan. And so basically I start asking you about this and you start telling me about these spiritual beliefs that you had, or I don't know if that's what you call it, I guess so. But like just kind of sharing more about yourself spiritually and stuff that you hadn't really shared with me in the past. And at this point in time, you know, I had developed such a deep respect and admiration for you. Like I wanted what you had in every respect and anything that will come out of your mouth, like I would believe. And so I think that if, if anybody else had told me some of the stuff that you were saying, and now when I think about it, it really isn't that even that woo woo, but for me at the time it was, I guess, Um, but because if anybody else had said that to me, I probably would have thought that they were crazy, but like, I, I, I admired and respected and wanted what you had so, so much that I'll eat anything that comes out of your mouth. And so you really did. You really opened up my eyes, um, in that respect. And then, you know, I went to Delphi and then I had that initial reading with Judy, which I played for the audience a few weeks ago, a clip from it of her, basically the portion where it talks about that I'm meant to be a communicator and, you know, it's spiritually and creatively based. So I, I share about that, that story often just about, I I think that you've played the largest role in my, in my spiritual life and practice. And I'm so incredibly uh, grateful for you for that. So I just wanted to start by paying homage to you there. 
Thank you, Andrew. That warms my heart. I can't even tell you. It's it, it, I feel it completely, what you're saying. And I'm just so glad that you took it and ran with it the way you did. So I don't even remember timelining it wise. Um, I, I'm, I'm surprised it took that long in our working together for me to talk about my spirituality, quite frankly, um, because it's so intertwined in who I am. Yeah. Well, I, and I'd like to talk about that some, but so first, how would you describe your childhood when you reflect back on it? Well, and you know, it's one of those things, if I may say first, before I get started, I, I'm from a generation growing up in the seventies and eighties and traditional training, psychotherapy training, where we're kind of a blank behind uh, over the over the table or on the other side of the desk where we don't really self-disclose in any way and we just keep ourselves kind of this person like a mirror Mm -hmm. that you can see yourself in in that kind of transference way so self-disclosure is not easy for me um, but I'm learning now, and especially with this era of podcasts and your generation, which I love the, the transparency, the openness, uh, the true heart of who you are as a generation mm-hmm. of saying, Hey, this is me and like it or not, um, here I am. That wasn't necessarily my era, my generation of growing up. It was very formal, very traditional. So I'm learning now to to say what my childhood, where I came from. Um, Because I always felt like if I kept myself buttoned up, then I could be that person, supportive person for someone else. And they didn't have to see me Mm. um, as someone who came from suffering, which is kind of crazy, right? Your generation says, wait a minute, how, how can I relate? How can I connect to you as a person? If I'm pouring out my heart and soul and you don't necessarily, you can't relate to me. But there does have to be a level of boundaries though, I would imagine. And also like safety and stuff. Yes. True and true. Mm -hmm. Both are are true. So I'm listening to podcasts lately and I'm hearing psychologists, psychotherapists, counselors of all different kinds, licensed counselors revealing some of their childhood Mm -hmm. trauma. So with that being Mm -hmm. said, I, for the first time, and really am opening up this that I came from a lot of childhood trauma. And, um, and that's no different than so many millions of people out there. However, what I thought was a weakness actually became my strength because it, it, it lent to so much empathy and understanding when I'm in a room with my clients. I mean, I don't think you can truly understand suffering of that magnitude unless you've been one to experience that yourself. So um, my journey has been to work, ironically enough, with suffering, with trauma, with grief, um, and not even realizing in all my training, I was working on my own stuff as well. So I know that seems Mm -hmm. so cliche, but the areas of specialization that I was attracted to, I really didn't realize that I had my own trauma. Some of that was in my blind spot. Some of that I I had yet to recognize within myself. And not until, quite honestly, I did my spiritual work, did I really understand the magnitude of the trauma from which I came. So just in a nutshell, um, 
parents divorced uh, earlier than I remember. And I grew up in a household of two narcissists, one very, very covert, a father that really wasn't in my life. And I'm sorry, overt, I apologize, overt narcissist, uh, probably sociopathic, and then a mother who was codependent, covert narcissist. So, and it was my brother and myself, very close in age, and my brother found a way to cope with the trauma and his fear through escaping and drugs. How old were you when they got divorced? I was, I was between one and a half and two. I have, I have no memory of it. I have no memory of my father being in the house. Um, lots of step parents, stepfathers that came and went. So a, a lot of codependency that I saw in my main one parental figure, my mother. Um, but so my brother really escaped through. Was he the scapegoat? Oh, he was the squeaky wheel. He was the squeaky wheel. Yes. He had, he had tantrums. He, he had, outward uh, behavioral problems, you know, as a result of our childhood trauma, which then resulted into early therapy, psychiatry, and medication, but also um, marijuana and other drugs. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that was his escape Mm -hmm. mechanism. And then mine was really escaping from fear through avoidance, isolation from family members, and more kind of uh, going into deep social life. But looking back on it, I also escaped through spirituality. I was very early on, I was reading any book I could get my hands on about afterlife, near death experiences, um, just wanting to know probably that there was something better than what I was experiencing. Where do you think that seed was planted? I mean, I really feel like in some ways, I know it seems kind of out there, but I feel like I I came into this life with that, with that desire and wanting. Uh, Mm -hmm. However, I did have one person in my life, uh, a family friend whose daughter committed suicide and her mother uh, got very involved with psychics and mediums uh, to just to make sure her daughter was okay. And and I followed in that. I went with her to every meeting. And I think I've shared with you that already at my graduation, I had a psychic. Come yes, to yes, yes. I was just about to now, bring that up. Yes. Now, mind you, that was the 80s. So no one, that wasn't normal in my world. Um, so I was the black sheep of the family. I was kind of the crazy one as I went off on those tangents. Um, but that was, that's what, that's what drove me and kept me going. And so Really, my childhood trauma uh, shaped in some ways my spiritual thirst um, for Mm -hmm. more, Um, and and also it also shaped my desire. And I didn't know it at the time to understand how people think, um, understand suffering, understand what was behind why I felt the way I did, and so that led me into psychology. What did your mother think about the psychic at the party? Like, and you reading the books, was she supportive of that? Or did she condone that? Did she belittle you? You know, that's an interesting question because I don't even remember her reaction. Quite frankly, she was so, I know, I know this sounds kind of crazy, but she was not really in my consciousness growing up. As I say, she was on her own path with her boyfriends. I don't think she, uh, 
she certainly didn't support it where she followed it and believed it herself. I actually, I grew up Jewish in a Jewish household. However, uh, really it was, it was atheist, maybe agnostic. Um, We didn't, we, we celebrated the culture of Judaism. So we celebrated the holidays, Hanukkah, and, you know, we stayed home from school on Yom Kippur, (laughs) but that was about it. But as far as the basic tenets of the religion, you know, we were not observant of that as, at all. So I never really learned about a higher power, about God that was not really spoken in my home. Um, and I don't really think I shared much of that. Yes, I had the psychic. And I think it was kind of, she probably, as my friends did at the time, thought it was great entertainment. Yeah, <laughs> they, never really, they never really said, no, don't do it, but they didn't encourage it. And so you grew up in Michigan and then you went to Michigan for college. Right. Um, well, first of all, did you know that you wanted to study psychology immediately? No. I mean, this was so subconscious. My, I need to back up one thing on that, actually. What was interesting is that I think when I said I needed to know what people think and how and in and, and their behavior, it's one of those things where it was... And I know you know this as an adult child, uh, what you've gone through. You you read between the lines, you uh, read the nonverbals. We just become mm-hmm. very intuitive for for survival. Yes. It's a sixth sense. Yes, it exactly. Is a sixth survival. Sense. So so because of that, it was a natural inclination. I just naturally understood what people were thinking when they were going to get angry you know, all of that, which really led me into these classes where it was almost as if I was being taught information that I already knew. So it didn't even feel hard. So I just took the classes in college. I took as many as I could originally as electives. I started out pre-med, then pre-veterinary medicine. And I mean, that was my fifth major I landed on. But really it turned to that because all of my electives equaled a major. So When I tell Mm -hmm. you it wasn't intentional consciously, I feel as if there was a higher power in some way kind of pulling me along in that on that path without me consciously knowing. So as you say, the sixth sense, Mm -hmm. definitely, it was something of that nature that uh, really motivated me to go into this field. When you reflect back on your childhood, Entering college at this point in your life, what was your understanding of the impact that it played on you at that point in time? Uh, no understanding whatsoever. I Did you consider it to be dysfunctional? Yes, but I covered that up at all costs. Remember, again, this was a different generation. Yes. So it, it felt like such a stigma and a taboo. I, I failed to mention also that... Uh, we were the only household that I knew of in my childhood. I'm sure there were some, but not in my friend group. That was divorced. Yeah. So my parents got divorced in 1971, 70. I mean, you can imagine that wasn't very common then. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really tell people kind of like the secrecy that goes on with addiction in the household. I didn't tell people necessarily that I lived with my mother or my stepfather. I made up stories about, you know, my dad was away or stuff like that. So I knew it was there at some level, but I didn't allow myself to consciously 
speak about it. Only my closest friends who obviously would spend the night and, you know, knew my life more intimately, but no one really knew. And at that time, it just, it just wasn't talked about. Mm-hmm. And I feel as if some of my friends' parents looked at the divorce as almost like a disease. Like if you're, mm-hmm. it, you, we, we can't hang out with them because we'll catch it. It's almost contagious. There was a fear in other friends' parents mm. to, um, I don't know. It, it's kind of hard to believe, right? When you're hearing that now, but imagine if you're the only one or close to the only one. And then you go sleep away at someone's house and they find out that the parents find out that your parents are divorced. Some of the parents did not want their kids to be friends with me as a result. Mm. So with that kind of covering up and that secrecy, I went into my, you know, my adult years. And then again, went into even my, as we talked about my profession with just covering it up. Mm-hmm. And the shame, I'm sure that lay underneath. Uh, oh yeah. And feeling as if I'm very separate from, I'm different from everyone. And that feeling of separation and the, and the fear of being judged, you know, was always under the surface. I was just thinking about how this is like my dream come true. You know me, I always like to get personal with my therapists and stuff. And um, I always want to be like the one that they share stuff with when, I mean, obviously I'm not your patient anymore, but I always like to ask questions to to my therapists like about them so then they can share a little tidbit. So I know that they don't think that I'm like absolutely nutso. You know, it's like my only child syndrome. So well, it's your way of connecting. It's always been your way of connecting and that need to know. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved that about you. You know, it's just, it, and, it's, and it's a beautiful mechanism that a coping mechanism to, to, for you to find out where you stand with people, your safety net, you know, to kind of read the room. Mm, very true. Yeah. Um, the truth of the matter, my dear shit shows is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. How did you see like with your mom, with her shame, how did that play out? I mean, did you, you know, obviously you were getting judged from school. I mean, she obviously was receiving judgment, I'm sure as well from the community. Did you see that impact her or did you just see that come out through her just dating? Well, that's a great question. I don't know if I can answer that exactly. Um, So my mom was young, right? So she was 28, 29, and she had two young kids. 
And she wanted to go out and date and she dressed very provocatively. And it was very embarrassing to us because, you know, everything was showing and we didn't live. It's not like we lived in Florida. We were in a cold climate where you needed to be a little covered up and and she chose not to be with her Daisy Dukes and her halter tops with everything hanging out. She was well endowed. Um, so she was, it was embarrassing. I was embarrassed to be in her presence outside. And I guess I never could tap into what her, her impression, her interpretation of that is. It seemed to me like she flaunted it, but of Mm -hmm. course we know that could have been a defense mechanism as well. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine knowing what I know now that she didn't feel shame for being the divorcee. Mm -hmm. Um, but she also, she also hid behind, she was the victim, you know, she was the victim. My father was a physician and he had um, several affairs on her with his nurses. So she was the the young victim. So that was the role she played very well. Well, that's a nice little segue because then you yourself found yourself a physician. (laughs) (laughs) So you meet your husband. Are you still an undergrad? Uh, I am an undergrad. He is in, he's in medical school. Yes. Yes. And you get married after three months. We got engaged after three weeks. Yeah. Three weeks. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes. Do tell. And, um, well, he was an undergrad and I was in, um, excuse me, he was in medical school. I was an undergrad. We were on spring break and we both grew up in the same town. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, which was the city was West Bloomfield, which is a suburb outside of Detroit, Michigan. Um, I knew his younger brother. So we kind of overlapped in our Jewish community. I grew up in a very solid Jewish community. And whether you were temple members or, or you went to the different high schools, you all kind of knew each other. Um, So I knew his younger brother. We ended up at a bar like restaurant, which is like a Houston's, And he was able to be in the bar because he was over 21 and I was not. Mm -hmm. And I went with a group of friends and sat in the dining room area. And he was there with his medical school buddies. He had just survived a terrible uh, car accident the week before where he was coming home from one of his rotations in medical school and flipped his car three times. And I don't know how he survived. I don't know how he survived, but someone cut him off the road and he, and he went off on the shoulder and flipped and the car was completely demolished, but he walked away from it with just a broken arm and um, some other minor bruises. However, he couldn't put his contacts in because he couldn't use his hand to put his contacts in. So he was in glasses. So he called my brother over who was there. Uh, who he knew. uh, And he called him over and said, who is that girl over there? And my brother looked across the the restaurant and saw, and he says, you mean that girl? That's my sister. And he said, I'd like her phone number. So my brother gave me a piece of paper and whispered in my ear, uh, this, this person wants your number. And I being the kind of immature, arrogant self, you know, said, well, if that person's not going to come over to me, I don't want anything to do with him. (laughs) And my brother said, He's in medical school. Take his number. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I called him the next day. I didn't think anything of it. Honestly, I wore contacts at the time. It was dark and I could only really see his silhouette. He was tall with dark hair. 
and that was good. And that's all really I could tell. And, uh, and that he was in medical school. <laughs> and uh, so we talked and uh, the rest was history. I mean, three weeks later, we talked and talked and talked and talked. And then we met in person and I had hoped because I thought he was the coolest guy and deep and funny and all of the above. And I hoped that I would be attracted to him when I saw him in person. And he came and met me and I was so nervous. And immediately I was so happy with him. And we saw each other day in and day out. And then after three weeks, he proposed. That is crazy. It is crazy. Was that not crazy? Like, did I? Yeah, but remember, I I came from I came from crazy. So no, I know that, but (laughs) it sounds like he must have too. (laughs) No, he came by all intents and purposes. He had the traditional family. His parents, his parents' marriage. You know, they were still married. Everything was intact. His father was a psychiatrist. Mother was a social worker. He's one of three kids. What could be wrong? I mean, everyone has dysfunction. I came to realize, you know, once I went through school and started seeing clients that I wasn't the only one, but there are degrees of dysfunction, right? My dysfunction was very much on the outside. Theirs was much more subtle on the inside. You had to go deep into the family to see the dysfunction. I would think that his parents would think that that's crazy, asking someone to marry them after three weeks. Oh yeah. What I say jokingly is they rolled in the red carpet when they met me. Here I I was an undergrad, once again, a a child of a divorced family. So his father being very traditionally trained as a psychiatrist said, well, the chances of you staying married to someone that comes from a divorce is even less. So they, I was already kind of prejudged going into our lives together. So I had to overcome that big obstacle. And so how long have y'all been married now? Sorry, I skipped all the way to the present, right? (laughs) Yeah. 32 years. Holy shit. Three kids. Yeah. All now out of the house. It's a lifetime. It moves so quickly, you know, but you know something. And I, and I just have to say going back, circling back to the trauma, we're talking about 32 years. I'm 52 now. So we're really talking about 50 years of, of, exposure to fear and all of the things that we're talking about. And it's amazing how those memories stay in the body as if they're happening Mm -hmm. today and they can get triggered no matter. And I am a huge proponent of change. Everyone can change, but the memories are there and things can trigger us. And, And it's really about learning how to understand self learning what's triggering us and finding mechanisms, healthy coping mechanisms or tools. Oh, do you hear my dog? (laughs) Sorry. Um, uh, Healthy mechanisms or tools to regulate those emotions and and negative kind of behaviors or self-sabotaging behaviors as a result from the trauma. I want to get to that. Just real quickly, can you just share, like, was there a pivotal moment for you where or was it more gradual, just you coming to terms with the trauma that you had experienced? What was kind of like your aha experience of this stuff coming to the surface? I think it came in different points in time and and stages in my life. Um, My earliest memory of the trauma coming up wasn't until I had my first child. Uh, We don't, I didn't see... (sighs) How do I say this? I didn't see, I always knew that my dad was the problem 
but I never saw my mom as being the problem because Mm -hmm. she was the one steady person in my life. I forgot to ask you, did you have no relationship with your father? It was very, very limited. I would have to go. He did help me pay for college. So I would have to go and in a sense, kiss up to him at his office to get to get a check to go pay for my books. Um, and partial part of my tuition, I paid I paid the other part. It wasn't the typical, it was probably once or twice a year, and we only lived five miles from each other. So he was definitely not a regular in my life. So my mom was the regular, but I didn't realize how unavailable she was to me and how how much neglect there was. So not until I had my own child did it come to me. How could a mother not be there for their child when they need when they're needed? Mm. So and it wasn't if my I mean my newborn's needs were different than you know I would know but just even tending to a crying newborn and being there in that way kind of flood I was flooded with all the different ways that my mom wasn't there for me so a lot of anger came through a lot and then I started within a year of that graduate school so learning my master's in counseling psychology and learning all of the, so, you know, psychodynamic, all the different theories of our childhood and how it shapes us and attachment theories. Whoa, that was suddenly what I didn't know consciously was coming up to the surface. And uh, I got flooded, quite frankly. I mean, I was definitely, I didn't know what to do with a lot of the emotions. So a lot of it got repressed, suppressed, pushed down. And then I, uh, I got training in a lot of trauma therapy, EMDR did a lot of work. So I, I, a lot, you know, I had to think about incidents in my childhood when I was getting trained that caused a lot of distress. So I had to bring those up to work on them. So, and then the spiritual Rohan work, I feel like it was an evolution when I was able to work on things. I would do it and we would dig deeper. It's kind of like I had that shovel and I would go deeper and deeper and deeper and find that the layers were a lot of layers were hidden from my conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm so glad I've done it. I mean, I certainly, I think it's a bottomless dig, you know, okay. it just makes us just more and more that self-awareness is, is, is really what I seek now through all of this process. Um, and really the forgiveness and letting go of what was all, all the pains and the hurts and the trauma and just working with the fear and how it shows up in different ways for me is what I really focus my attention on now. So that's a long story short, I guess, no, or short great. story long. <laughs> yeah, no, I can hear more. When were you first exposed to EMDR? I have to think back. So I... After I finished my master's degree, I felt very ill-prepared to address many different things that were coming through my door with clients. Um, I feel like my master's, while it was really, really good, it was a general training. So when I was faced with sexual traumas, when I was faced with, there was a so much, you know, I'm thinking about through the years, there was so much when we went through the in 2007, I mean, this was later when the financial crash, everything went on, people were losing their jobs, there was so much grief and loss. 
As a result, there was so much divorce, um, infidelity, all of these issues that we touched upon lightly in our theories. Mm -hmm. But I, as I say, I felt I wasn't prepared to really give 100% to my clients. So I did a lot. I was always at Barnes and Noble. <laughs> I always felt like I was one chapter ahead of my clients. In between sessions, I was at Barnes and Noble with my nose in the books, learning as much as I could on particular issues that my clients would present with. Um, and thank goodness there was a plethora of information out there. And I, I learned enough to know that I didn't know much and I needed further training. So I decided, that's when I decided to go back in two ways, to get training in trauma, which the best at the time had been EMDR, and also in sexology, because I was dealing with a lot of sexual issues, sexual dysfunctions people were coming in with. Um, I had one sex class in, in my master's program for you know eight weeks, 10 weeks. That was not enough to, to feel that I, I could master you know, I was masterful in that and helped someone. So, um, that's so that was how just I, happening, right? It wasn't like that was your expertise. It just so happened that they started to, they just started coming in the door. Yes. I mean, I always feel as I go back to what I said before, I always feel like there was an energy of sorts guiding me, leading me through the, this path that, that I had no, I didn't see it at the time. I really mm -hmm. was I was kind of like a child that just going with the flow, wherever it took me, wherever the wind blew, I would go. I was open, I guess mm -hmm. you could say, where I really believed. And I think I go back to my spiritual foundation from childhood, just believing in there's a higher power and to be open to what comes to you. So I didn't really, as I didn't know I wanted to do psychology, then when I finished, I had no idea who is going to walk through the door when I put my shingle up, right? Yeah. Um, I didn't even know if I was going to practice, quite honestly. I just did not know. So, um, and, I, and I also have to add one more thing. My spiritual work began, I should have had a timeline for you. Once I finished my <laughs> traditional training at 31, mm -hmm. I decided after those degrees, I decided now I want to learn about hypnosis. Mm -hmm. So I, I went to a hypnotist in, uh, uh, in Fernandina beach, which is just about 40 minutes from my house. And she was wonderful. And she did regression therapy. I had some fears at the time and she regressed me. And then she took me back to other lifetimes, whatever you want to believe if it's, if it was real or not, it was powerful. Mm -hmm. So I said, where did you learn that? How did you get trained? And so before I knew it, I convinced my husband and I was on to further training. So I became, I went 10 days for training in hypnotherapy. That was like putting on jeans that perfectly fit mm. and you can't believe it. That's what hypnosis was for me. When I got trained in hypnosis, when I was taking people through kind of getting them relaxed, I had this weird sense of I've done this forever and it was so simple and easy and wonderful. So I was doing a lot of hypnosis and that really got with, and I back up. That was my first, that was before EMDR. That's where I realized that trauma is stored in the subconscious and you've got to get to the subconscious to really open up the door to healing. So I did that with other clients. I did this with clients with cancer, with molestation, you, you name it. I did it. Some people, it was a spiritual thing. 
Um, and then, and then from there, I moved to EMDR. So this has always been part of me, but it just kind of showed up. The hypnosis happened because my last class in my master's, my professor happened to be a psychic and she found missing children. She was from either Korea or China. She was Asian, brilliant. And the last day of class, she said, by the way, when you want to turn your papers in, if any of you don't know, I have this, these abilities, I don't share it very often, but if anyone has any questions, when you turn your paper into me, I could answer that for you. Well, you know, I was first in line to turn my paper in. And that was my last class and my master's, my last. And she told me stuff that there was my grandmother in my house. And she told me amazing stuff. And that's when I said, okay, I've got to learn more. And that led me to open at, at the time, there was the, the white and yellow pages to open up that book and say, I'm going to try hypnosis. And that began that whole next journey of my life, which started from 31 to 52. Wow. Did you ever reconnect with her, that professor? No. And I can't, for the, for the life of me, I can't her. think of her name. Oh. I mean, I could find it obviously, but I no. it was so, I mean, the timing couldn't have been better. Wow. That's crazy. Um, I was, I didn't get a chance to read it, but I want to, but I was looking at your dissertation, which one, the, the one of like sexual murder, nature oh, or nurture. Oh, I didn't know if it was my, that dissertation or the one for Rohan. Oh no, no, no. That one. So this one's for your PhD, right? Yes. So what, what was it? It was, what, isn't that what it was about? Sexual murder, nature or nurture, right? Yeah. Yes. That's um, a pretty juicy. I think people would like to know what the hell you learned. Well, honestly, when I was in my doctorate, I was in full-time practice and I had three young kids and I'm married. So I didn't have the time to even really think, what do I, what am I interested in? In, in you know, what am I going to write a whole dissertation on? And honestly, I was watching, I think this was pre-Dexter, but I've always been interested in datelines and all mm-hmm. of these things. And so my press, my professor at the time was like, okay, if you can't think of something, Melissa, because I was like, oh, I don't know. I know I could do something on infertility and, you know, all eh, just, it seemed boring to me. So I was like, what's going to interest me, even though I knew I was never going to pursue that in my career after that, I just needed to get my dissertation and go. And so that was my interest, uh, quite honestly. And there was a general, um, so there was another person in my program who was equally as interested. So if you would have seen in my Kindle at the time, I always joke that if I left my <laughs> Kindle somewhere, someone would have reported me or, you know, yeah. Because they looked <laughs> with all of my research and articles. So it was really quite interesting. I mean, it was just saying that it is a nature nurture equivalent. As much as I wanted to find one or the other, I wanted to say, oh, it's definitely people are born evil. And, you know, the Ted Bundy's, they come out that way. And no, I mean, it is a psycho, a biopsychosocial combination. So, so what is it? Was it for what people that are men that are killing women in the act of sex or what? what classified? Yes. So the difference is that the sexual gratification is the suffering, the sexual suffering of the woman. Okay. So it's not to, it's not the killing itself. It's so, well, the, 
the eroticism is in the suffering and it's sexual uh-huh. suffering. Yes. Wow. So very dark. So you, and I know you had shared with me before. So like you do, you have a, you have a lot of, or you, you did at one point, you had a lot of patients that were men that were sex addicts that had sexual related mental issues. How the hell did your husband feel about that? (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, I would say he knew that when I had a very good boundary that way, Uh um, boundaries weren't easy for me. Obviously that wasn't taught to me as a child modeled to me. They really forced it in our psyches and in, in my schooling about boundaries and, and what's right, what's wrong, the ethics of that. So I was very conscious of what I do in that room stays in that room. Mm -hmm. There were only a few, and you are one Mm -hmm. of all the years, the hundreds of patients or clients that I'm calling patients that carry over into my personal life, so to speak. And, uh, I don't know. You're just one of those special ones. What can I say? I do. Stroke of my ego, baby. Keep saying yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously the sex addicts, the, I mean, anything that goes under the umbrella of my sexual training, and that's mm-hmm. very vast, um, was well-contained. And he, there was a lot of, there's a lot of trust between my husband and I, you know, I mean, we grew up together. Mm-hmm. So We've built that. Uh, so I just don't think he's, and he's just very, he's just confident in that way that he doesn't have to be concerned. Now, I do have to say there was one gentleman, I think, I don't know if I shared that with you. Uh, and maybe you may have. your listeners would want to hear this, uh, hear would, get a, would get a kick out of this. So I saw this older gentleman. And at the time I was in my thirties and uh, he was probably my, my eldest or oldest client. He was in his seventies, but he looked like he was in his eighties because he was a drinker. He was a smoker. He was a, this, he was a bat. And I think he just saw my picture and just decided he, you know, he wanted to come in and, and, and talk, (laughs) talk, you know, but he really, he (laughs) he honestly was a very well-adjusted man. He was divorced, two grown daughters, well-adjusted in that he, he had a good ego, but he wasn't necessarily compensating for any underlying insecurities that I could see, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he wanted me to help him find a woman. Gosh, darn it. He was in the seventies or uh, late (laughs) seventies and he was having erectile dysfunction and I was going to help him make that darn thing work and make it so he can have a woman who would be by his side while he did his gambling online. <laughs> Maybe he was fondling him while he was doing his gambling Shame online. Shame he didn't know me at the time. Yeah. Right. So one time, and I had to be very, very clear about boundaries. He would come in and want a hug or a kiss. And he would, and when he would kiss my cheek, he would try and move my face to get on my lips. And, you know, our field is very much about, oh, you don't hug, but I've always, I've kind of broken through that boundary. If it's a male and I feel safe and they know it's safe, I'll ask them, is it okay if I can give you a hug? Uh But we're not really supposed to be touchy feely in any way. Yeah. Um, So sex addicts. (laughs) Yes. Yes. 
so he one day came in and I have to say one time I gave four Christmas gifts. Were you part of that? No, I don't think I was around then. Mm, Maybe it was before. Yeah. Before you came in. It was probably around 2009, 2010. So he came in and he got his little baggie and he went to give me a hug and he put his hand directly on my chest. And I said, no, 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 that can't happen. And I'm going to have to ask you to leave now. And that's probably the only time I have ever had to do that to anyone. And so I did go back and tell my husband that. And for a moment, he questioned, should I, should my wife be doing this (laughs) behind closed doors? Um, So I think honestly, that was the end of me being on the fringe so to speak, with my sex sexology um, yeah. training and uh, approach, treatment, I should say, approach. So I moved away from that. And I, and you know, when we talk about what comes through your door, once I kind of made a concerted effort to move away from that part of the sexology, I got less and less of those clients yeah. that were calling yeah. me and coming through the door. And more and more about sexual trauma, sexual molestation, rape. And that's really is in keeping with my my training and, and my personal story. So, and that's where I follow as a sexologist my my um, my interests and really working with clients that suffer from that. Yeah. When I was asking you about your husband, like I was asking more so like, was he concerned from like a safety perspective? Right. Cause it's like, you're a beautiful woman and no, yeah. Thank you. Um, yes. And no, my other office mm-hmm. did not have a door. It only had one door if you remember. So we always were concerned if I saw evening clients, I was the last one in there and I didn't really have an escape. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it would get dark you know, early and I would be the last one out. So we did kind of look at putting cameras in and so forth. In my new office, I have another door so that I think he felt better about that. But honestly, it was some of my other clients that brought to my attention. They were more concerned, (laughs) believe it or not. So I would um, imagine. Yeah. Lots of creepy dudes out there. Um, So a few questions for you. So kind of want to get your input on like modalities of healing and also like finding a therapist. Obviously, you know what the issues are that we're like dealing here with like the adult child syndrome. What are your thoughts on like finding what's right? I mean, obviously we're all different, right? How do people discover like what is the right path to go down as, you know, versus like EMDR versus spiritual work versus Mm -hmm. just like regular talk therapy, hypnosis, Um, Great question. How does somebody navigate that? I guess it comes down to really what resonates with you. If spirituality does not resonate with you, then obviously that's not the road to pursue. Uh, So it's really kind of going into self and saying, what do I need? Do what do I feel safe doing? Mm -hmm. Because it's really about safety. Because all, once we feel safe, it's amazing how we open the door to healing. Because all healing is self-healing. But when we're in a place that's safe, where we feel protected and okay and not judged, 
And really the body tells us that. If the body feels uncomfortable and unsafe, it's saying this is not for you. So really all therapy, and, and, I, and I know you, you know this, is the efficacy of treatment really comes down 60 to 65% of it is the relationship that you build with your practitioner, the therapist, whether that therapist is a hypnotherapist, whether they're a talk therapy therapist, or they're a trauma therapist, whether they're not licensed in that at all, and they're, and they're spiritually trained, if they, if you feel safe in their presence and they give you what we call in this just unconditional positive regard, then that's the road I would go. And I feel like it, just like I, I explained in my own, and I know in your journey too, Andrea, it's, it's a process. It's not a one and done thing. You know, it's a layering effect of, okay, so this is coming up for me now. This is what's showing up in my life. So I need to work on this. So let's say it's relationship issues, which ultimately brought you in to see me, mm -hmm. right? So the relationship issue is the issue at hand first. So if that's the issue, then you say, do I go see a talk therapist and who specializes in interpersonal work? Because I'm finding I'm having a hard time in relationships. And then from there, it can grow where you worked on some of that, you're feeling better. And then it's like a layering effect. Then the next one comes to the surface. Oh, there's an underlying fear of attachment. Mm -hmm. That is underneath why I'm having interpersonal issues. What do I want to do with that attachment? Do I want to deal with it in hypnotherapy? Do I want to deal with it with my spiritual counselor? You know, do I want to work on it through yoga? You know, there's so many different modalities, treatment modalities. This day and age, it's you can work through trauma somatically, right? Mm -hmm. Soma, body work, or you can work through it with mental work. I mean, there's so many different ways. So I guess it all comes back to self. What do you feel you need right now? And really ask, posing that question to yourself is your best answer. I want to circle back to what you said about the, um, <clears throat> the feeling, the safe and the positive regard with a therapist. I mean, can't some of those feelings that come up, can't they just be like an internal resistance to getting help? Some, you know what I mean? Like how much of it is like, I just don't want to do this. Like this is uncomfortable. I don't like talk. Like I have never talked about these things before. I'm not sure I want to do this work versus like, I'm not feeling safe with this person or this isn't the right therapist for me. So how do you discern you're saying? Yeah. yeah. Between resistance coming up? Yeah, because, yeah, because a lot of the times, I mean, one of the biggest resistances to adult child healing work is like the pain. We we don't think we can handle the pain. Right, so um, we distract in other ways. Yeah, so like how much of it is like, is it, this isn't the right therapist for me or this isn't the right modality of therapy for me versus like, this is just internal resistance preventing me from healing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good question. It's, you know, it's different for everyone. Mm -hmm. Again, it comes back to kind of going into self and asking what is this about? First, we have to recognize that we have resistance because it's so subtle. And we don't always notice it. I'll give you an example. Um, you could get sick before your appointment. Mm -hmm. I mean, the mind is so powerful that the mind is saying, no, I don't want to go there. I want to resist this. This is too scary. So I'm going to make this person physically ill. 
So how do we really I'm gonna give you know? diarrhea? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Or a migraine or something that, you know, really you can say, oh, I, I can't go into counseling. I miss my appointment or I miss my group or whatever it is because of this. So it is one of those things where we have to be mindful. I know that's such a you know word that everyone uses now, but it's true about you don't know, honestly, that mm-hmm. how to discern between the two. You have to go into self and a good therapist would, would bring up resistance. We don't see resistance as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. We see resistance as a natural protection for survival. So it's talking about, do you think that this could be coming up? I've noticed that when we talk about this, you change the subject or you get, you start to feel sick to your stomach, the nonverbals, right? We've Mm -hmm. talked about that. I remember saying Mm -hmm. that with you, even sometimes asking, turning around and asking me questions was a way of taking the attention off itself, right? Mm -hmm. It can be very, very subtle. Mm-hmm. Or it can be so strong that you say, I don't want to go to counseling. I don't like my counselor. When really you have to say, okay, that's interesting. I'm having this, this feeling, this reaction. And then go a little deeper. What is it about? Is it because that counselor doesn't understand me? I don't feel safe in his or her presence? Or something's coming up that we're talking about that doesn't make me comfortable. Mm-hmm. So what I would suggest at that time is I would encourage people, the listeners to go back to either themselves and ask that question and pose that question and write about it and journal about it and see what comes up or in counseling the next time, bring that up to the counselor and see how they respond to it. So a good, healthy relationship, a safe relationship would be, let's talk about that. I'm so glad you brought that up. Not where the counselor gets defensive and, and starts blaming you. Right. And, and if that's the case, then there's a a telltale sign that that's not a safe place for you. That's not a place where you can grow. Mm -hmm. Um, another question. So in my personal opinion, when it comes to, you know, this stuff and finding a therapist and it goes back to what we were talking about as far as, you know, initially you kind of, you know, not disclosing much about yourself. I do feel like it's important to have, you know, they don't have to have our exact experience. A therapist doesn't have to have an exact experience, but I do think that it is important if they can somehow relate. Um, how can someone ask a potential therapist that in a way that's appropriate or what are your thoughts about that? That's great to ask. Um, well, obviously, if you're if you're going to in, through addiction, right, you pretty much know that your counselors have had an addiction themselves, right? They're they're recovering. Um, it's not as easy in other areas. Mm-hmm. So you can just and you're so great at that. You would just come right out directively and say, <laughs> yeah. you know, and 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 honestly, if you had said that to me, I would have answered. It would have been mm-hmm. quite it would have been really amazing uh, if you had said, you know, how do you know about these things? And I think you did. Mm -hmm. You asked me if I came from alcoholic parents and so forth. So I think it's very fair for someone to ask their counselor. Uh And, um, but here's the thing. If the counselor uses the whole session to talk about their stuff, that's I would love flag. it. I would love it. <laughs> no, a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Then they'd have to pay you for the session. 
Yeah, exactly. There's a show on <laughs> Apple TV. Oh my goodness. Did, did you, have you seen that? It's what is called, it? uh, oh my gosh. It's, I just watched it last night. Um, is it reality or no? No, it's with Will Ferrell and um, oh, oh, my, yeah, yeah, my yeah. neighbor, the shrink or something. Yeah. Oh. Um, the, 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 the shrink next door. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my goodness. It's so perfect. It, it's all about the, this, this, you know, that's based off a real story. I listened to the podcast about it, but I haven't watched the show, but that's a true story. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, first of all, the Jewish and I can, I can relate to their, you know, their, their childhood, their background. And this takes place in the eighties, but the psychiatrist, I, I think he's a psychiatrist. Yeah, he is. His stuff is so unprocessed. And he is, it's spilling out into the relationship and negatively impacting his patient. Mm -hmm. So this speaks volumes to why it's so important for therapists to do their own work Mm -hmm. um, and not use that venue to work our stuff stuff out. So I think about that, that uh, if someone he needed to be asked what, what's your background, right? Will Farrell, yes. who plays the patient needed to ask the psychiatrist, what's your background in this? Yeah. <laughs> so I Paul do reds in it, I think. Right? Yes. He's so great in that. Yes. So anyway, I guess what, yes. Ask the therapist, how do you, you're, you're working. Have you ever worked with people with my condition or what I'm coming with, what I'm presenting with? People ask mm-hmm. that all the time, or you can be more mm-hmm. directive if it's, you know, if I've had, let's say, let's say someone comes in with a rape, mm-hmm. how familiar are you with sexual uh, violence? Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily asking me if I've been a victim Sexually. of that, yeah. mm-hmm. but how, how well can I understand it so I can help you? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about mind, body and beyond and all the stuff you got going on there? We could, we could also talk about you. Well, this is about, this is my podcast interview with you. What do you want to talk about with me? I know what you, I thought it would be neat for you to tell them what you've done of the stuff that I talked about. So, all right, let me just say it, mind, body and beyond, which is where I work. I'm president of mind, body and beyond. I offer integrative healing psychotherapy, Reiki, energy healing, yoga, and uh, more. So my whole, my whole approach is wellness. And I got to use this term. I think this is so cool. Actually, I heard this the other day that illness, it starts with an I. Wellness uh-huh. is W-E. And yes, so we. think about that. We are social beings. We need a community to help us grow. We are never meant to be in isolation alone. So I believe wellness is about a we that we, we need to have a group of, of wonderful healers there to help those that come in. Maybe they don't want to come see me for psychotherapy, but maybe they feel their wellness will be better achieved through physical therapy and acupuncture. Oh, I'm, I forgot to say I have acupuncture as well. <laughs> so that's what Mind, Body, and Beyond Center is. It's a fully integrative healing center that addresses more Eastern in combination with Western healing modalities. Nice. So, yes. yes. We healed. I always say that. That's my my selling point for my my Patreon, which is like my additional group where I host 
like virtual support groups is like, we don't do this shit alone. You know, we heal together. I love that. Yeah. So think about we being in wellness and the illness is when you have to do it alone, when you feel isolated and separate from. Yeah. Okay. You hear that guys. So if you're not joining the Patreon, um, that means that you're ill. So you better join it so you can get well. <laughs> I use any mode possible to shame people into joining my thing. There you so, go. My there style. You go. Because what about me? I mean, they hear all, they know all about me. What do you want? What do you want me to talk about with me? Well, of the EMDR, of the Rohan, yes. of the talk yes. therapy, of the different treatments that you and I have worked together on, what seems to hold the most value for you? I think it would be really interesting for us to revisit EMDR if I, if, if, and when I come to, to Jacksonville, I'd love to do it again because I feel like I still didn't really know exactly what was going on. I don't know. I, I feel like I was very still much in my adult child disease at the time that we did EMDR. Cause that was in between Brian number one and Brian number two. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a very different experience now. So I, it's kind of interesting. And I share this often because this is what you told me. So when I was talking to you about EMDR, you said to me that it's not like I'm going to walk out of here feeling like a different person. You said, let's say we're processing a trauma that happened more recently. You might walk out of here feeling different, but when it's stuff that's from the past, I think you said over six to nine months, um, you will notice a shift in your thinking I think it was hard for me. It's so subtle. That. Yes. Yeah. It is very subtle. It's, it's, it's just, Oh, catching yourself saying, wait a minute, I'm not reacting in the same way I used to react. Mm-hmm. So it's not night or day. It's yep. just a, a shift that happens slowly. And what used to cause you to react zero to a hundred uh, doesn't, doesn't create that same response. Mm-hmm. I had a, I had a guest on two weeks ago. Um, I didn't challenge her on this, but I'm in meaning to look it up, but she made a comment that, cause she was talking about how effective EMDR was for her adult trauma, but mm. she said it was not as effective with her childhood trauma. And she made a comment that that's what the research shows. I haven't looked into that, but have you heard anything like that before? No, because I'll tell you what, I mean, and and I'm not, I'm not diminishing what she's saying. That's her belief, correct? Yeah. But as far as my experience in my profession, it, it is a, it is a trauma-based therapy that works for, it started with PTSD, you know, combat veterans and so forth. And so these veterans aren't necessarily people that had dealt with that trauma recently. This could be people that, you know, that you know, 20 years ago. Um, But traumas, you know, those formative years that, you know, zero to nine, 10 years old, that's where things are really programmed into the psyche. And when you can go back into those memories and and experience all the, really what trauma is, is unprocessed memory. Yeah. So when you go back into those memories and you have a way of processing it, reprocessing it and desensitizing it, it doesn't matter how old they are. Mm-hmm. Maybe what she felt was that those are more apparent to her because they're in her real time, you know, her life right now. So she can experience them, but we really, those old memories have a pull on us 
and they have like the energy, they are the, the current that kind of feeds the, the more recent traumas. So really the, the purpose is to get to those core, core traumas. And, um, and when you do that, oftentimes it takes the energy out of the subsequent traumas up to the present. Mm-hmm. I would say that the Rohan was most impactful and I feel like it would take us forever to dive into how do you, how do you explain that in like a minute, what it is? <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I'm going to tell you that why, while they, all of these types of therapies attracted me, hypnosis, um, and EMDR and Rohan is because they work with the subconscious mm-hmm. and they work in a way what, which doesn't go so far away from traditional training, which is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yep. So you're focusing on thoughts, faulty thoughts, and all three of these things, stories that are stored in the memory. And you're working on the, the stories that have cognitions and feelings that are stuck in the mind and body. And we're understanding it, we're reprocessing it, and we're giving and reframing it. So your stories don't hold the same negative um, interpretations. It's not the story itself that causes the trauma. It's the interpretation. It's what we believe about ourselves. The narrative, yeah. As a result of the trauma, correct, the narrative. So I feel that Rohan, the only difference between Rohan and the others is it combines, it's the CBT in the different chakras, but you're also working in the energy, how it's stored in the body. And you're mm-hmm. removing that energetic field. You're removing the, the, so feelings are energy. Thoughts and feelings have energy and they're actually stored in our bodies. So with like the, like the hypnosis, like the EMDR, the Rohan does the same. We're going back to the stories and we're learning what the pain was, what the faulty belief was that we held about ourselves. I'm not lovable. I'm not good enough. Um, I'm invisible, whatever that may be that you're going to show up in all of those. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, we're understanding with the Rohan that that energy, how does it feed you in this life? Now, if you think you're not good enough, how is that energy? It's an energy. How is that showing up for you today? And then Mm -hmm. it's about forgiving that energy because all that energy knows is to believe that you're not good enough. So it keeps playing that. It's like a loop of that belief system. So we forgive that energy. It's not the energy that's bad. And so we're actually understanding it, forgiving it, removing it. And we do, and I can't show you because we're, um, I, you can't see it, but there's ways that you move the energy out of the body. Yeah. It's kind of like, I guess you would describe it kind of almost like a, as a guided visualization process, but also is slightly body work, but yeah, it's essentially it is the body work. Yeah. So it's, but, but it's like a but guided visualization. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I just want to add one more thing. You're so right. It is that. What makes Rohan a little different is we start with an induction that takes you very high. Up. With hypnosis, we go low, we go deep. With the Rohan, we the induction takes you to, to meet your higher self, your, your true higher spiritual self. So you remember that you are this, this being that we forget when we get bogged down with all this negativity of I'm the invisible self, I'm the bad self. No one loves me self. We forget that. So we first introduce that higher loving self. So then the higher loving self goes in and helps that 
sad, depressed, unlovable self forgive and see who it really is. So Rohan is a very spiritual cognitive behavioral therapy type of transformational um, healing. Powerful. Yeah. It probably makes no sense to anybody what we're saying, but I'll include like, I'm definitely want to do an episode on it. I'll either have you or I'll get Judy. And, um, if anyone's interested in learning more about it before then I'll put links. Um, I think Janice's book is it's like little, and I think it does a pretty good job of explaining it. Yeah. It is wonderful. It's, um, yeah. Rohan therapy, the great, yes. By Janice Hayes. Yeah. I'll include it in the show notes peeps. Um, well, this has been amazing. It's so wonderful to talk to you. You are a fabulous interviewer. Thank you. And, and just full of light and wisdom and you continue to do more and more work on yourself. So I couldn't be prouder. And thank you you for having me. I love you. You take care. wraps up today's episode. As always, you're welcome for providing you with some good ass content. Thanks to Melissa. You guys know that that was a a dream come true for me. I love being the one to ask all the damn questions because I am super nosy. Um, I don't think I've shared this before, but you know, it, it has been a theme of mine my whole life. I am quite inquisitive. Um, sometimes like to my detriment. Some of my friends will probably remember it was, I don't know, I probably had a year or two sober and we were out to dinner for fellowship and um, there was like a newcomer girl there and I'm just, you know, I'm peppering her with questions. Here's the deal. Sometimes it can come across, I I think I've gotten better with it. I've I've learned this about myself. It can come across as like very, um, you know, aggressive or like intense or like I'm interrogating somebody. It's really coming from a place of, um, a genuine desire and interest to get to know somebody. So if I ever am peppering somebody with questions, just know that it's because I'm genuinely interested in getting to know somebody. But so I'm asking this, this girl a bunch of questions and probably taking it too far. And she was like, what is this? 20 questions? Like, are you the cops? Like, is this the FBI? And um, yeah, I was quite freaked out because if I ran into this girl in a in a street alley, I'm pretty sure that uh, she would win. <laughs> so, thankfully, uh, I apologized and she left me alone. And that was probably the last time I ever asked her any questions. But how wonderful that I have found an avenue where one I can overshare and it's appropriate, and two where I can just ask people shitloads of questions. It is perfect for me. Um. So yeah, check out the show notes for links to my social media, also ways to contact me. Please hit a girl up. I love hearing from you guys. Um, And yeah, I hope you guys have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, So grateful for for each and every one of you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to be in your ears every week. I'm incredibly grateful and just honored. Um this I'm blown away at the impact that this podcast is having having on people. And I'm just really grateful for all of y'all for, you know, sharing with other people and let's keep it going. And I will see you guys next week. It's gonna be super raw. It's gonna be super vulnerable. And I am super fucking pumped for y'all to hear it. It's gonna be a goodie. I promise. <laughs>